are listening to The Addiction Files, where we discuss evidence-based treatment, clinical pearls and resources, while striving to destigmatize the treatment of addiction in our medical culture and save lives. We are The Addiction Doctors, Dr. Darlene Peterson and Paula Cook. Welcome to this episode of The Addiction Files. We are back with listener questions. Just a shout out to Dr. Hansen, who asked us what you do when you inherit patients who are on buprenorphine naloxone with benzodiazepines. And we just want to talk tonight about the new data and recommendations around this subject. And this is a common problem. I encountered this frequently in my practice, and I know Paula does. Let's just talk a little bit about the epidemiology and the risks associated with buprenorphine and benzodiazepines, and then we'll talk about some action plans when you encounter this scenario. Perfect. And, you know, this is, like you said, this is an interesting problem. We all encounter this when we treat patients with opioid use disorder, and it's not only the benzodiazepine buprenorphine question, it's the benzodiazepine methadone question. And it's also like what's going on with benzodiazepine and opioids in general, right? Because this is a bourgeois problem, right? So let's look at the data. If we look at the CDC morbidity and mortality data that was published in 2021, so they're looking at data from basically 2019 to 2020, they say, okay, benzodiazepine involved overdose deaths had started to decrease from 2017 to 2019. We talked about this on a previous episode where we saw a lot of drug use beginning to decline in 2019 and early 2020. And then, of course, the pandemic hit. And since 2019, according to the CDC, the illicit benzodiazepine supply has really increased. From 2019 to 2020, benzodiazepine overdose visits per 100,000 emergency department visits increased 23.7%. Okay, that's quite a huge jump, both with and without opioid co-involvement. So that 23.7% increase in overdose visits to the ED relating to benzos, 34.4% were opioid involved and 21% were not involved. This is a common problem that we see them both being used. From the middle or early 2019 to the same time in 2020, prescription and illicit benzodiazepine involved overdose deaths increased 21.8 and 519.6% respectively. I'm going to say this again. Prescription benzodiazepine involved deaths in the year of 2019 to 2020 increased by 22%. Okay, that's a lot. But listen to this. Illicit benzodiazepine involved overdose deaths increased 520%. That is nuts. And I think we see it, right, Darlene? I mean, we see it clinically. And how much of it is due to pressed pills that are contaminated? How much of it is just due to access? I know that in my practice around this time, we were seeing a huge rush of synthetic benzodiazepines that were on the streets. Anyway, this is a whole topic that we could go into, but I find this super fascinating. And during just the first part of 2020, so from January to June of 2020, 92.7, so nearly 93% of benzodiazepine-involved deaths also involved opioids. 93%. And 66.7%, so two-thirds, involved illicitly manufactured fentanyls. 
So we've talked about this before. We talked about the horrible event that happened in San Francisco back. This was kind of a herald event where folks were buying what they thought were Xanax on the street of San Francisco, and they ended up getting pressed pills with fentanyl, and there was a rush of deaths in that city. I mean, that's old hat now. We see that kind of thing all the time. But I think we're seeing this data change in a horrible way, in an upward direction, because of access to benzodiazepines increased illicit benzodiazepine um, on the street and through the dark web. And then, of course, manufactured and synthetic fentanyls, fentanyl accessibility and contamination with benzodiazepines. Benzodiazepine-involved deaths are on the rise. Benzodiazepine overdose visits are on the rise. And, of course, we also see a lot of co-benzodiazepine and opioid prescribing, co-benzodiazepine and opioid illicit use, benzodiazepine and methadone and buprenorphine use. And so what do we do with these folks? One, when they present for intake, so they come to you and they're taking, you know, they're using heroin and fentanyl plus a benzo, or they are on oxycodone and alprazolam and zolpidem, or you inherit them, just like you said, Darlene, you inherit these patients and they're already stable, quotation marks, on their 16 milligrams of bup, and they're also taking two or three sedating CNS drugs. What do you do with these folks? It kind of just gives you a gut wrench, doesn't it? It is, and it's common. These numbers are staggering about the dangers. We see the illicit benzodiazepines as the worst. The prescription and the diversion of the benzodiazepines is a huge problem. I mean, that's what the data is telling us. Right. So exactly. So let's go back. Let's look at the historical recommendations regarding prescribing benzodiazepines concurrently with opioids, which we can extrapolate. And actually, there was all, there were recommendations regarding benzodiazepines and buprenorphine and methadone versus some newer recommendations based on access to treatment and the risk mitigation of illicit opioids versus medications like methadone and bup. And then how do we deal with this in our practice? How do we come to terms with it? What is best practice? And also how do we what can the patient do? You know, what can they do to be accountable and keep themselves sober and not put themselves in harm's way by getting attached to benzos? I mean, how many patients, Darlene, do we have who've really struggled to get sober from opioids or from alcohol for this matter? And then somehow they get prescribed benzos or they start taking benzos illicitly and then develop a benzodiazepine use disorder. And they tell us it was the hardest thing to get over, the worst thing to taper off of. So the last thing we want to do is contribute to that. And we have a really interesting podcast on this actually with Dr. Beth Howell in season two on managing patients in recovery. But so you can refer to that if you want to hear us talk more about that. But Darlene, tell us a bit about historical recommendations dating back to like 2016 and and beyond? Previously, it was really challenging because it was always this hard no. And it still is. There are still programs out there. If you're on benzodiazepines or a patient comes to your practice and or transferring care, it was, nope, we won't admit you. You're on a benzodiazepine or you're on a sedative hypnotic. The new recommendation, so this was came out in 2017, and this was the based on additional review, the FDA advised that medications for opioid use disorder, and this includes buprenorphine and methadone, should not be withheld from patients taking benzodiazepines or other drugs that depress the central nervous system. Be, even though we know the, com, the combined use of these drugs increases the risk of serious side effects, we are not arguing that. We've just talked about those risks. The harm caused by untreated opiate addiction outweighs those risks. Then we're going to get to 
we've shown that methadone and buprenorphine are shown to be effective in reducing the negative effects and the deaths associated with opiate addiction and dependency. That's the statement from the FDA on what the current guidelines are. That being said, the action plan that you want to take when you encounter these patients on daily or frequent use of a sedative hypnotic or a benzodiazepine is number one, education. Just talking to the patient about the serious risks of combined use, which includes overdose and death, and coming up with strategies to manage, and tapering the benzodiazepines and CNS depressants to discontinuation if at all possible. And that's the preferred, right? That's always my preferred. And I have this conversation with patients. When I have a patient who transfers into my practice or I inherit a patient who's on a daily benzodiazepine, I have that in our language then on their first visit that, hey, you're on this medication. These are the risks. And this is going to be our plan is to taper you. And we do humane tapers. And we also look at why, why the patient's taken in the first place. I think that's something really to kind of back up is looking at the reason why they're taking it. I always tell them that why we'll treat your anxiety. It's, it's just not going to include a benzodiazepine. We need to look at our patient and just be like, why were you prescribed this in the first place? Many of them were put on, started on these benz, benzodiazepines and this preceded their treatment, trying to mitigate their withdrawal symptoms when they were still in the throes of their addiction. You know, working with them, we find that so many of them do very well tapering off in a medical setting. What they were using it for was insomnia and anxiety associated with their withdrawal. Many of our patients do have trauma. When we have them in trauma-informed care, they're getting appropriate treatment for their PTSD and therapy. Really, the benzodiazepine is not is, is really not the most appropriate care and, and sometimes impedes them doing the appropriate therapy. So exactly. It's exactly. more important. I think that's a really important important thing is getting to the why you're taking it in the first place and that we're still here to help and we're still going to treat you. Exactly. I couldn't agree more. And I love that you are bringing up the why, you know, why, why are you taking this? And let's get to the root, the root of the issue. Addressing that uh, benzodiazepines are hardly ever the appropriate medication for long-term management of these conditions, especially in a patient with a substance use disorder, right? Now, neither you nor I are psychiatrists, and there may be psychiatrists listening to us or other practitioners that would, would vehemently disagree, but for the most part, benzodiazepines are not meant to be used long-term. They have lots of associated risks. They do have a high risk of addiction. That's why they have a box warning. They have a long-term box warning for the use of um, concurrent use with opioids, and they're def- they're definitely kind of dangerous medications, even though they can be useful in the short term. Absolutely. And I, I think you're right. When we have folks who come to us on benzodiazepines, they're always, not always, but commonly really 
anxious and scared about coming off of them because in and of themselves, they're so difficult to come off of because of rebound anxiety, because of increased tolerance, and because they are typically used for anxiety. And so people who take them are anxious. And then the fact that you're trying to take them off of the medication that numbs or dulls that anxiety is anxiety provoking. So I agree with everything you're saying and really taking the time to use those skills, the Bravo skills that Dr. Anna Lemke from Stanford teaches us to taper people off and have those discussions and make sure that we have their trust. And like you said, humane tapers is key. And like I said, we have a whole podcast on this and there are lots of good resources available for tapering benzodiazepines. I would say the Oregon Pain Guidance website, that they're a great group. Shout out to them. They have some wonderful tapers. And then the Ashton Method, which we talk about in our episode, Dr. Ashton is a a a neuropsychologist who developed this method of tapering and cross-tapering benzodiazepines and treating benzodiazepine withdrawal over a long period of time to mitigate the rebound anxiety and the withdrawal and the protracted withdrawal that people can experience. And so you can look into that and see what that looks like for people because most commonly people don't tolerate benzodiazepine tapers when they're done too quickly. I think that's fantastic. And I think the other thing that I didn't mention was just coordinating care with their other prescribers. If you are the one prescribing their benzodiazepine, and they're, for instance, in a methadone clinic, I think that's really important that you're coordinating care. I can't even tell you how many patients that I we have successfully tapered them off and they do very well. So I, I like to play devil's advocate, but at the same time, and you have to take this for what it's worth, we do encounter patients who present for treatment for opioid use disorder who are taking benzodiazepines. They've been taking them for a long time. You taper them, you attempt to taper them. They may be taking their benzodiazepines appropriately, and you can verify that. You obviously monitor them. You urine drug screens. You follow their prescription drug monitoring programs to see where they're getting prescriptions. And some folks do not tolerate tapering or getting off of these medications. And it may be that the risk, the risk is worth the benefit, if that makes sense. And you're left in lieu of losing them and them not being engaged in treatment for their opioid use disorder, you're left with them on benzodiazepines in your practice. Now, should you prescribe them? That's kind of personally up to you. But I think we run into real hot water when we become real inflexible about what we will and won't do with every single patient. When you're faced with the alternative that the patient will resume using fentanyl or heroin just because you won't treat them because they won't get off their final 0.5 milligrams of clonazepam. I'm not saying that everyone should leave their patients on all of their benzos or prescribe benzodiazepines. I'm just saying we do have to take into consideration that sometimes you look at folks and the risk of taking them off their benzo is higher than keeping them on it. It's a tough one. And I know you probably hate me saying that, Darlene, because you run a real tight ship. But it's no, just... I mean, I think it's... No, it needs to be said. And I have patients who have failed multiple taper attempts. We tried cross tapering. We have we have worked multiple avenues. And we, it's like you said, we get them down to that one stable dose and it's consistent and it's appropriate. Those are typically the exception. Just you look at your Absolutely. panel of patients and you're refilling 
let's say I'm just going to make it your even hundred and you're refilling 90 prescriptions for clonazepam and, and 90 prescriptions of buprenorphine with that every month, there might be an issue there. But if Absolutely. you're saying I'm, but if you're saying, okay, I'm, I'm doing my hundred buprenorphine prescription and I'm only refilling maybe three or four prescriptions of a benzodiazepine with that, that's more likely what you'll run into you should be able to work with the patients and taper them down. Every patient should be given the opportunity to at least attempt taper down. Absolutely. Sometimes it may be like, this isn't a good time in their life. And so I just put it in their chart that we have a failed attempt taper attempt and we'll try again. And then some eventually do taper off. Others, it may be, okay, we'll try again in three years. And then you may have some bite with their other mental health conditions that, yeah, maybe we're not going to get to that point. Absolutely. No, I couldn't agree with you more. Absolutely needs to be the exception. And unfortunately, I've supervised and seen charts where form is true. And I've seen every single patient seems to be on Zolpidem, Clonazepam, and Buprenorphine. And I'm just like, what is happening? Oh, and add in um, Adderall. No, that needs to be the absolute exception. And I'd also add, personally, I get more excited about methadone and benzodiazepines than I do about buprenorphine and benzodiazepines. Now, that's not to say I don't, you know, I don't encourage and we get patients off of benzodiazepines and buprenorphine, but because of methadone being a full opioid agonist and the way it operates, really encourage patients because of the increased risk to get off of their benzodiazepines or cross, you know, taper and really manage that more aggressively right away. Absolutely. The risk is just higher. Yes, absolutely. And I'm, I'm really weary of methadone clinics in your community, OTPs, which just broadly allow benzodiazepines because you have to just wonder why, like what what are they subscribing to, to allow their patients to be on both benzos and methadone? And you have to ask, are they, are they funded, you know, is, are they private pay clinics and they're in to just capture patients for revenue and they don't really care about good policy and so they're more permissive. These are things you want to find out. So be careful when you're referring patients to OTPs, you know, opioid treatment programs or methadone clinics, find out what their policy is about methadone and uh, benzodiazepines because you want to refer your patients to clinics that really do a good job and make sure that they keep their patients safe. Again, that being said, if someone's using benzos and they need to be on methadone, it should not be a barrier to starting methadone treatment, but we're talking about ongoing chronic maintenance management. Uh, One of the things I wanted to say um, is it's not only benzodiazepines that are the problem, right? Any sedating drug any CNS depressant is a risk in combination with an opioid. And in fact, uh, the FDA lists this lovely table of CNS depressants to be considered in combination with opioids as a risk. Of course, alcohol is at the top of the list. Alcohol is just as dangerous in combination with opioids as a benzodiazepine. It's a CNS depressant, and it is also associated with overdose risk and other morbidities. But other CNS depressants we need to have on our radar, especially muscle relaxants. And I see a lot of our patients on chronic muscle relaxants, and I know you do too. These are also CNS depressants. We know that their mechanism is just to depress the whole CNS in order to cause relaxation. They don't just target, you know, the trapezius, right? Other CNS depressants would be 
antipsychotics, unfortunately. Now, we're not saying that you need to taper everyone, taper anyone off of their antipsychotic. Definitely not. But just keep in mind that if a patient is on an antipsychotic with a medication for opioid use disorder, be aware that they may have an added um, sedative effect. Don't forget to ask about over-the-counter sedating medications. A lot of folks will be taking things like diphenhydramine um, or other over-the-counter sleep aids, and those will potentiate medications like methadone or buprenorphine. That's a really good point. But I think it's important to educate our patients, I think, number one, about the risk. I just tell my goal is, is number one, your safety. And so I don't want to prescribe you any medications that are going to be harmful. And then I want to make sure I just tell them before you accept any prescriptions from any other provider, you need to clear it with us so that we don't put you on anything that's going to be harmful. Just in summary, historically, from our treatment improvement protocols, the FDA recommendations, the 2016 boxed warnings, benzodiazepines were not co-prescribed with buprenorphine or methadone. In 2017, it was updated. The FDA changed their statement that medications for opiate use disorder should not be withheld due to the potential for overdose with illicit opiates. This is a risk-benefit mitigation strategy that you're using, so really it's a harm reduction approach. But the key is use these tools to mitigate the risk. This is our one big thing. Prescribers should not prescribe CNS depressants with buprenorphine, naltrexone, or methadone. Patients should also not take CNS depressants with these medications. So when you already have patients who are on them, we offer them tapers, we offer them other treatment options to treat their anxiety and keep working with our patients to keep them safe. Got it. All right. And then we had just another listener question. What about patients who have been on buprenorphine for five, seven, 10 years and then want to taper off? What data is out there to support return to use, risks, benefits of tapering? What do we do in this situation, Paula, and how do we counsel our patients? Approach to treating substance use disorder should be patient-centered just like any other treatment approach in medicine or behavioral health, right? We want to approach it and keep patients' goals in mind. However, we know from data that's available and recommendations from SAMHSA and ASAM and these other governing organizations who gather all the data together that treatment duration does matter and does affect outcomes. And we know that the longer the duration, typically the better the outcome, especially there's quite robust data supporting the use of buprenorphine. And when we say buprenorphine, by the way, we pretty much, we're always talking about buprenorphine naloxone. We use that product, but just for simplicity, that the use of buprenorphine for at least 12 months is recommended. The shorter you use buprenorphine, the more likely you are for people to return to use and experience overdose deaths. And this was demonstrated back in the early 2000s when uh, Keiko et al. famous Scandinavian study demonstrated that when you withdrew patients from buprenorphine after giving it to them for six weeks versus maintaining them on it for 12 months, you had a 100% dropout of treatment in the group that was detoxed, basically, to use that colloquial term. And you had a one in five, so a 20% rate of death by overdose by the 12-month mark in the group that were withdrawn from the buprenorphine at six weeks. I mean, that is terrible. If we had another treatment that we used in medicine, that if we stopped giving the treatment at six weeks, 
and 20% of the patients were dead after a year, there's no way we would recommend or require prior auths or make this medication difficult to access. We wouldn't make it a problem, right? This is a life-saving medication. Absolutely. And when patients, yeah, when patients stay on buprenorphine for 12 months or longer, retention is good. They have more negative urine drug screens. Not 100%, of course not. No treatment in addiction is 100%. Just like no treatment for hypertension is 100%, no treatment for diabetes is 100%. No treatment for depression is 100%. We're looking at classic chronic disease models. However, the longer the patient is on buprenorphine naloxone treatment, it seems like rates of abstinence increase. Now, we have lots of robust data from methadone with this question, but we're talking about buprenorphine. There is a study that was, it was just published in 2021. They looked at long-term patient outcomes following buprenorphine naloxone for opioid use disorder. It's a retrospective analysis in commercially insured populations. This was published in the American Journal of Drug and Alcohol Abuse, volume 48. It was just published actually in July of 2021. This has information and methods looking at 2,500 patients who were prescribed buprenorphine and following their odds of abstinence and ED visits. There's also a very good study that looked at the rates of abstinence or the measures after patients had been followed prospectively when they were treated with either buprenorphine or methadone. And they looked at, um, they randomized them into either of those two treatment groups. They followed them for five years. And during the five years prior to the participants' last follow-up interview, 33% had achieved abstinence from um, opioids. They were mostly following heroin. And abstinence was positively associated with a few factors but longer duration of treatment was one of the factors. So the longer the patients were in treatment, the more likely they were to be abstinent from heroin. Interestingly, other positive associations were older age at first opioid use, which makes sense, right? The younger people start using, the more likely they are to continue, lower impulsivity rates, and greater social support. And there was a negative association um, as well, which is interesting, and I tweeted about this, and that is cocaine use is negatively associated with abstinence of five years. What's our answer, Darlene, based on the data, based on the science? Well, I mean, on the science, most of it is a minimum of 12 months, and then most of the data looks follows patients up to like three years. And then they looked at them at five years. And you did see, you just said, some positive, still abstinent five years. The longer you have them on it, you're always going to see increased amounts of abstinence. After the 12 months, we don't have a specific date like, well, if you go two years or if you go three years, you know, you're going to have necessarily better outcomes. But we do know you do get a decreased return to use the longer. Again, where we started out the very beginning, it's patient autonomy. I And I get patients who sometimes have been on it seven years or 12 years. And they just come to you and they just are like, I think I'm done. I want to taper off. My response to them is okay. I'll help you do that. Some of them, it's maybe not they taper off, but they taper down. I mean, I have multiple patients in my practice that are on what I would call an ultra low dose. They might only be on one or two milligrams, but they feel very stable. Their side effects are very minimal. That's what they want to be on. I also ask this question, why do you want to taper? Well, I, I want to taper because it's making me tired. It's making me constipated. So we taper down to where they're comfortable. And if they want to continue, continue tapering, we taper off. But some of them are like, well, I'm on two milligrams and I feel great and I just want to stay here. Okay, that's where we'll stay. I think that's an important question I always ask first is, 
why do you want to taper if it's cost, if it's they're losing their insurance, it's other issues, or they're going to move? Is there something we can do to help them with that? Or if it's medication side effects, will just tapering down mitigate those side effects? Or if it's truly, they many of them, it comes from a personal thing with them where they just feel like they no longer need that part of their treatment. I completely respect that and we will help them taper off. And I continue to follow them and we offer them other, there are other options as well. Absolutely. Everyone should be given that opportunity too. And they do really well. I I have many patients that I'm still their primary care and I have many that I've now followed for years. So I have my own data and they now have five years, seven years abstinent off medication and doing very well. It does work. Right. Of course it does. Yeah. And people, not every person, you know, needs to be on long-term medication. It's what, there are all paths to recovery. I love that. The other, one other thing I was thinking of while you were saying that is do not abandon your patients in their taper. Make sure you understand how to taper buprenorphine. Well, understand how to taper methadone too, if you work for a methadone clinic, but hopefully you do if you work in a methadone clinic. Buprenorphine is very potent, very small doses attached to the receptor, they have a very high affinity Yes, at low dose. And two milligrams of buprenorphine is very strong. It's not only just equivalent to about 40 you know, MMEs, it has a very sticky attachment to the receptor, very difficult to dissociate. And so folks, patients may not understand and they may think, man, two milligrams is nothing. It's nothing. They stop taking it. They have awful withdrawal. They then vilify buprenorphine as a medication because it gave them terrible withdrawal. And then you're in a treatment conundrum. Make sure you understand how to taper buprenorphine all the way down slowly and effectively and work with your patient to do that. I don't know how you do it, Darlene. And we should, do we have an episode on buprenorphine tapering yet? Yes, we have. We did. And I, (laughs) and I often tell my patients that you can taper down fairly quickly from 16 to four or two milligrams. Mm-hmm. fairly easily. A lot of them do. And they think, oh, this is nothing. Two milligrams to zero is mm. what can take you six months or longer. Yeah, it can be very difficult. It can be yeah, very yeah. difficult. But if you do it with, like you said, I love that you said that don't abandon your patients. If you do it with your doctor and you work with us, it's it does not need to be uncomfortable. Yeah, people can be really, really comfortable. And you can, so there you go. We keep referring to other episodes, but we have episodes on buprenorphine management in season one that we talk about buprenorphine tapering. And there are resources out there too with mentors that you can align with through the Opioid Response Network who will help you for free through their grant in terms of actually managing patients who you're finding difficult. But I love that. That answers our listener questions. And uh, we love questions. Please continue to ask them. You can email us. What's our email? I can't remember. Theaddictionfiles at (laughs) gmail.com. That was really hard to remember. We do we do remember to check it once in a while too. (laughs) Listen, I just started a new job. I've learned about 10 passwords just in the last two days. I can't remember another email. Or we have Twitter, we have Instagram. Please uh, tweet at us, send us messages. We have Instagram. You can message us on Instagram. If you're not technologically savvy, just send us an email. Good old email works as well. And we'd love to hear from you. We're actually really growing as a podcast, which is so exciting. We're a grassroots podcast. We get no money. We just record. Not that we wouldn't take money. <laughs> Who wouldn't? <laughs> Especially you, because you spend hours editing. Okay, well, everybody have a great rest of your week, and thanks a lot for joining Thank us. Thank you. Today. Have a good night.
Until next time, hey, check us out at theaddictionfiles.com or email us at theaddictionfiles at gmail.com. Thank you so much to Ricky Valides for use of his song, Awake. Check him out at rickyvalides.com. purposes only. Hosts and guests are not responsible for any harm caused by information obtained from this source. As each person is unique, you're advised to seek the advice of your own healthcare professional to treat any medical conditions you may be having. Opinions expressed on this show are those of the addiction files and not of our respective employers.